From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox president Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF. and welcome to What Goes Up, a weekly markets podcast. My name is Mike Regan. I'm a senior editor at Bloomberg. And I'm Valdana Hayek, a cross-asset reporter with Bloomberg. And this week on the show, well, just when it looked like the crypto market had stabilized following the massive blow-up of the Terra ecosystem earlier this year, here comes another big blow-up. This one arguably more surprising and even more systemically important to the whole industry. Sam Bankman-Fried's FTX exchange. Now, before this, he and his firm were long considered one of the most stable cornerstones of the industry, with the 30-year-old billionaire known as FBF even being described as the J.P. Morgan or Warren Buffett of digital assets. Even if you've never even dabbled in crypto, you've probably watched FTX's funny Super Bowl ad with Larry David or seen FBF palling around with Tom Brady, or maybe you noticed the FTX logo on the chest of Major League umpires. So what does it mean for the market when such a high-profile pillar of the industry collapses in a matter of days? We'll get into it with the chief executive and the chief investment officer of a quantitative crypto hedge fund. But first, Vildana, you know, before every podcast, you write down like 47 questions to ask. I have so many. So many questions. Now, we we actually had SBF himself on this podcast, and I noticed... You never asked him, like, hey, SBF, when's your thing going to blow up? Well, that, but that's the thing about his whole company is that everybody thought they were going to be, I mean, they were like the gold star, right? And I'll, I'll confess, I had uh, Do Kwan on the podcast one week when you I were I remember off, and, when I was off. I, it, it did not occur to me to ask him, oh my gosh, when's your thing going to blow up? Hopefully no more blow-ups. I'm blushing. We've had enough blow-ups. People can't here. see me, but I'm blushing. But you know what? The thing is, in crisis, there's opportunity. When stuff blows up, uh, sometimes traders make the most of it. Yes. I, I do want to bring in our guests. This is the perfect week for us to be talking to them. I'm really excited to have them on. We have Sadie Rainey. She's the co-founder and CEO of Strix Leviathan. And Nico Cordero, he's the CIO at the company. Welcome to both of you, and thanks so much for joining us on this week's show. Thanks for having us. It's really nice to be here, despite this week. Likewise. Great to be here. It's definitely a rough uh, week, and I do want to get into um, all about you guys and um, what you do and how you're faring and, and what this week has like has been like for, for both of you and for your teams. But maybe, Sadie, we just start, start with you, and, and I'm hoping you can just lay out for our audience what exactly happened this week uh, what were some of the major factors, the major players involved? So, great question. I think that's actually the question that everybody's trying to figure out right now. What what did happen or what is happening? And the big, big issue here is really 
I don't think we have all the pieces of, of information. And really, it started at the end of last week when there was some back and forth between Binance and, and FTX on Twitter, you know, and there was a lot of, I guess, allegations going around, which there was an immediate response from FTX, um, you know, kind of that everything's fine, we're all fine. Um, and then suddenly, you know, there was very clear signs of distress um, for FTX in the market. And Binance came forward with an offer to acquire or bail out FTX, more or less, which was very quickly uh, rescinded. Um, and in that whole process, there was a large run on FTX, um, which dried up their liquidity leading to them freezing withdrawals. And uh, now there is a very aggressive attempt by FTX to find a solution to their liquidity so that they can make their investors whole. Yeah. No, I, also, if, I, I'd be curious if did this catch you guys as much of a surprise as it did the rest of us? Yeah, it did, to be frank. I mean, the speed of which we turned from you know, small rumors on the internet that didn't seem to have validity into FTX freezing accounts was all in a span of about 36 hours. Um, and like you mentioned in the opening, you know, FTX was largely considered the most trustworthy institutional player in the space outside of the U.S. Um, so not including Coinbase and others. Um, so yeah, I think it was it was it was quite a shock, um, and a lot of folks are surprised and angry, rightfully so. Yeah, and Nico, I imagine it's and and Sadie, I imagine it's impossible to run a crypto hedge fund without having some sort of exposure to FTX, you know, either as a client or counterparty in some way. Is it is it creating any issues for you guys? Yeah, uh, I mean, it is difficult to not have exposure to them, you know, within the U.S. You know, preferably we'd like to keep our capital in the U.S. under U.S. regulated exchanges, but if you want access to derivatives, perpetual futures, and capital efficiency through the type of instruments that are offered offshore, you like, you have to be offshore. You know, so we were there, we're a counterparty to them. We do have some funds frozen there. It's not the best of situations, but luckily for us, we are, you know, place a large emphasis on risk management. And so we only had a small portion of our portfolio allocated there simply because this space is the wild west. And, you know, you expect these things to happen, just not to FTX. Any communications or indications of of, uh, when and if you'll be able to withdraw funds? Uh, At this time, it's a very fluid situation. We're not sure, you know, what's happening behind the scenes. And Sadie, maybe you can talk about just the significance of the events, because we've been we've been talking about how it's been a rough week. Obviously, crypto markets tanked at one point during the week. It seemed like the the horrible sentiment from crypto also had spilled over into the equity space where we saw the S&P 500 also selling off. Just what is the significance? Like how momentous of what unfolded over the past couple of days? How momentous is it? It's really momentous in this situation. You know, we've been through a number of, of market crashes and, you know, in the past have also traded with Voyager or we've used Voyager not for trading, but we've used Voyager in the past. We also use BlockFi. And when there were some indicators that maybe they were, I guess you could say, over, over their skis, um, we stopped uh, trading with them, you know, well ahead of, of what happened last spring. And this one, I don't think anyone saw coming, you know, it was 
really quick how it happened. It was really fast. And I was actually speaking at CoinAlts last week up in San Francisco on Thursday, ironically. And one of the topics I talked about was risk and how, you know, the reason people love this industry is because the crazy returns you can get. But, you know, you pay for that with with risk and you have risk across every avenue and counterparty risk is just one of those risks. So you really have to make sure that you're looking at, you know, all the areas out there um, and you're never literally putting your eggs in one basket because you can never be sure at this stage that everything is what it what it looks like it is on face value. Was it also much more shocking considering that we basically had like weeks or even months of um, a very, uh, I guess we could call it a calm market where we really didn't see prices surging or plunging in any way, but just like meandering for a really long time? Yeah, I mean, that's exactly correct. I mean, from the outside looking in, it looked like crypto was stabilizing, had sort of forming a, a a foundation from which to find strength after the chaos of May and June. Um, and things were starting to trend, you know, upwards again, things were starting to look um, like crypto used to look in the early bull markets. And then obviously everyone was sidewiped uh, by this revelation that, you know, very few, if anyone saw coming. You know, Sidney, I know sort of the, one of the appeals of quant investing is that, it, you know, you let the math do the work and you sort of take out the human emotion of things. So uh, this strikes me as something that, you know, even a quant strategy is going to struggle with just such an out of the blue occurrence. So I'm curious if you could talk about some of your strategies. Um, I know you have a market neutral strategy that in theory, you know, should be able to weather a, a type of collapse in prices like this uh, better than a sort of a long only or levered up long strategy. How does this type of event affect a quant? Um, is it is it the type of thing that you're just, you know, as clueless as everyone else? Or is, you know, is there something about being a quant in this space that allows you to navigate it a little better? Uh, in general, yes, we. I definitely believe we can navigate a lot of these incidents much more efficiently than than a lot of our, I guess, a lot of our comrades out there. But really, you know, quant is non-human. Uh, you know, it's it's looking at the data. It's it's trusting the data, and but you have to set up your system with a very risk oriented. My mentality. So you have to, you have, the computer can only be as good as, as you let it be in those situations. And you can't just listen to everything that your, your signals say, you know, you have to set it up so that you are mitigating risk. You, you always have to have multiple counterparties in these, this industry. You can't, you can't trade with just one, one place. You also have to make sure that you have, you know, we set maximums for any one counterparty. Um, so even though prices might be the best and trading might be, might be the most profitable with one exchange. We're not going to put eighty percent of our funds there. We just we just won't. Um, we're not willing to do that. And you know, so our portfolio has limits per per trading partner. It has um, overall limits for signals. You know, we are a long short fund in our main fund. Our system will only go to a certain percentage short. So, you know, doesn't matter what the market looks like. Um, and if all of our signals wanted to short, we still wouldn't short. We'd only short up to um, the threshold percentage. So, you know, you have to really make sure that your guardrails are set in place for, for a quant fund. And then, you know, having different strategies definitely helps. Having a market neutral DeFi fund helps. In this situation, having, you know, our DeFi fund was, uh, you know, com- 
has, you know, so far been completely unaffected by this because it's uh, self-custodied um, using it, uh, decentralized exchanges. So we don't have this centralized party risk of somebody you know, mishandling our, our funds um, without us knowing it. So the system, though, again, just being repetitive, but the system's only as good as, as what you train it to be. I'm sure you guys don't want to sort of give up the ingredients of the secret sauce uh, or anything, but I'm curious what sort of some of the main elements are of your strategies. And I'm guessing uh, trend following and momentum plays a big role. Yeah. And the flagship funds, you know, that's correct. We have systematic in nature, takes directional exposure, both on the long and short side. We have a mixture of trend momentum, cross-sectional uh, momentum. Uh, so really playing relative value across the assets that we trade as well as some idiosyncratic signals that are that we found about unique market structure within crypto, um, you know, would pick up the bulk of the of the systematic fund. And then on the market neutral DeFi yield fund, you know, that's largely driven by yield opportunities with a with a heavy risk overlay, um, being able to hedge out, you know, crypto beta exposure in uh, you know in a crypto native way entirely on chain without having to interact with centralized counterparties. So, Nico, can you actually talk more about your market neutral fund? Because this is something I had been writing about over the summer when, um, well, and also earlier in the year, we had crypto prices crashing in, in May and June. And what market neutral strategies do is they tend to hold up better during those times, right? So maybe can you just lay out for our audience, what is a market neutral strategy and how is it faring on you know, during weeks like the one we just had? Yeah, so market neutral in this sense is we have some exposure to crypto price movement through the assets that we're holding within uh, a variety of decentralized exchange and other uh, DeFi protocols. But then we utilize uh, hedging strategies to net out that price exposure. Um, so that way, you know, if Ethereum goes up 20%, um, you know, our long holdings in Ethereum go also go up 20%, but our short exposure goes down 20% and it kind of nets out. Uh, there's more to it than that. You know, it, it requires real-time rebalancing to account for impermanent loss and, and, and other issues that arise on decentralized exchanges. But in a nutshell, that's how it works. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. So does this event this week, will it change your strategies going forward, change the way you do business? You know, it sounds like in a way you were, you know, sort of prepared for something like this to happen, you know, limiting your counterparty exposure and that sort of thing. But it, what's, is there a lesson learned that, that you'll carry for, forward from this week's events? I mean, for one, we'll probably reduce our individual exposure to any one counterparty even more. Um, it gets difficult because there are not a lot of large exchanges with good liquidity that you can trust. And then we've also started the very initial conversations of like around, okay, do we take our flagship fund and, and only interact on decentralized um, options uh, to, to mitigate the, central, uh, the centralized counterparty risk? Um, so that's early stage discussion, but because we run a market neutral DeFi fund, we have all the technical infrastructure in place to self-custody our flagship fund and you know, only interact on uh, you know, on-chain. 
And Sadie, maybe you can just um, just to go back to the basics, basically, uh, tell us more about you guys' company, how you got interested in crypto, and maybe you can even fold in a bit about your background and Nico's background because you you guys both have very interesting um, sort of past lives before your, your crypto lives. Sure. Uh, happy to kind of give a little more color about our, our background. Um, so I'm the co-founder of Strix Leviathan and um, originally founded the company with Jesse Proudman about five years ago. And I met Jesse when I went to work um, for him at his last startup, um, which is a private cloud uh, company. I was the financial controller there. That company was acquired by IBM in 2015, so I stayed on, led the integration of the accounting and finance and operations teams into Big Blue. Didn't really love um, going into a 360,000-person company after <laughs> being in a 60-person startup. And uh, Jesse was a distinguished engineer at IBM, so he, um, you know, he ended up in their blockchain group and really fell down the crypto rabbit hole, as we all do. We'd stayed good friends, so I, I knew he was getting more and more into crypto and, you know, dabbling in mining and, and trading. Um, but then really, really got passionate about trading and from a, as a technologist felt like that was a huge opportunity. Um, so he approached me towards the end of 2017 and said, hey, I've got this business idea, um, what do you think? He knew that we needed to have structure and operations and legal and compliance, but that's all stuff that he finds um, as exciting as washing paint dry. So he's like, hey, can you know, do you want to do this? I know that's kind of your wheelhouse. So that's how we started was really looking at trading in the space and, you know, individually trading back at that point in time in crypto, it was impossible to capture any kind of um, gains efficiently. You know, you could see the price discrepancies across different exchanges, but by the time you could actually execute a trade, there was no profit left in it. You know, you couldn't trade by API, or if you did trade by API, you know, trades were dropped or double filled or would look like they weren't filled. And then two days later, they'd show up as as completed. And so it was, it was just super inefficient. So, um, we decided to launch a fund, um, with, uh, actually Jesse as the main investor to start and some of his friends and then, um, built the trading technology at the same time, um, launched the fund, the first fund in April of 2018. And by then realized that our technology was just as valuable, um, as, as our, fund methodology was. So, um, and stepping back a little bit after we, we formed the company officially in January of 2018, we realized we needed somebody with a much deeper finance, um, skill set than we had. So that's where, uh, we were introduced through a friend to Nico and it was, you know, it was as soon as we met Nico, we, we knew like, this is, this is the person that we're going to grow this company with. So, um, he joined really early on as well. So when, you know, when we went live in April of 2018 and bought our first Bitcoin, which the price at that point in time was $9,000, um, thereabouts, um, you know, Nico was there, placed our first trade. So it's been pretty awesome to have him, um, at the helm, uh, since then. Yeah, Nico, why don't you why don't you take it from there? How did you end up in this rabbit hole? Uh, <laughs> what's your what's your backstory? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so how I ended up in the rabbit hole of crypto is I used to be in the U.S. military, uh, spent some time over in Iraq and Afghanistan, 
Um, it was uh, around 2010, I think it was the first time I read about Bitcoin. Um, I did not put everything I had into it or I'd be re retired on an island right now. Um, but I was entirely fascinated by this concept of uh, decentralized currency that had no intermediaries and no overarching control. I mean, it was very hard to sit in Iraq and looking around at the, you know, the complete collapse of their infrastructure and not see the value add, um, which is not as easily visible from the streets of the U.S. where we don't have to worry about those things. You know, I wanted, I'd like to rewind a little bit and get back to the idea of DeFi. Um, you know, as you point out, um, I feel like DeFi has a bit of a told you so moment right now uh, after what happened to a centralized, uh, huge, important player like FTX. Um, so I'm curious, where are the opportunities in DeFi that are most exciting to you guys? And especially in the, you know, the notion of yield farming, I feel like that seemed to get pretty toxic after the collapse of, of Terra and its, its anchor, uh, program. Um, so what, you know, is yield farming too risky these days or are there, are there places where, you know, it's still attractive, uh, and, and sort of what projects, what, you know, are you, are you finding the opportunities in these days? Yeah, uh, definitely had an I told you moment here, right? Because everybody who operates on DeFi is sitting with their own capital and their own self-custodied wallets and, and not worrying about some third party scurrying off with their funds um, and doing illicit things with it. Um, so definitely an I told you so moment. In terms of yield farming, there's still plenty of opportunities out there. I mean, this is, we're very early stages. I know at this point, you know, Bitcoin's been around for, you know, it's been almost 13 years now since the white paper originally came out, uh, but all of these additional use cases around decentralized finances are still in their infancy. So, you know, if the trillions of dollars of global economy, even if it captures 1% of it, you know, the opportunity is still quite massive. Um, and so the opportunity still remains and we're still pretty bullish on it. Nico, can you talk a little bit more about what you guys are doing Right now, maybe you can give us just a bit more specifics. I know in the notes you had sent to us, which granted you sent before everything happened, <laughs> but you said that there are potentially some areas in the space that are undervalued. So can you just tell us a bit more about that? From an undervalued or overvalued perspective, like one of the reasons we built the system we did on the flagship fund is because like that is an impossible number to to peg. Um, you know, should Bitcoin be a million dollars or a thousand dollars or less? Like no one really knows, and it's dependent on future idiosyncratic events involving decisions by governments all around the globe. So it's extremely difficult to you know, put a number on that. Undervalued in the sense that I think people are writing off DeFi after the last year, year and a half because of the blowups and the collapses and the amount of money that has been lost is where things are undervalued. Um, you know, these systems are in their infancy. They're not user-friendly. But if those problems get solved, you know, it, there's a, a ton of value in removing intermediaries and creating a more frictionless, um, you know, financial system. And again, you know, this goes back to discovering this when I was in Iraq. Like this means a lot more to somebody in Africa or the Middle East or other parts of the world than it does to us sitting in America. Like we're not I'm not particularly concerned about my bank going to zero dollars and stealing my money or the U.S. government, you know, collapsing uh, in the next five or 10 years. But that is a really real concern for many people around the globe. Uh, what about altcoins? Because I think you guys also were favorable towards certain altcoins. Yeah, we are. I mean, you know, it's, it's, it's hard. I think this whole space will look very different in five years than it does today and even more different in 10 years than it does today. But we at Strix are not particularly fond of the idea that there will be one currency to rule them all. We think there are 
reasons that multiple currencies will continue to persist. And, um, you know, we're particularly excited about the DeFi ones, but, you know, decentralized uh, identity is another very interesting area that we're looking at. Um, and I think it's kind of necessary to take the next step in DeFi. So it's all interrelated. Now, I know as quants, you guys have your heads in the data and, you know, the algos and everything. But I think what this week really hammered home for me, as as well as the collapse of Terra, is how important these sort of larger than life personalities can be in crypto, you know, whether it's FPF or, or Do Quan. And especially, you know, these flame wars break out on Twitter between, you know, Do Kwan and his critics and now, as you pointed out, Binance and FTX. And it's almost like this kind of machismo, bravado, alpha male battle that goes on and really can cause some destruction in the, in the whole space like we've seen. So, Sadia, I'm curious how you think about that specifically, you know, a, a level-headed woman uh, surrounded by a bunch of bros, uh, you know, duking it out on Twitter. How do you sort of incorporate the risk of all of that into what you do? <laughs> yeah, the story of my life being surrounded by a bunch of bros. Um, I mean, being a woman in technology to start was was big enough, uh, you know, uh, lack of diversity. And then I went into crypto, you know, just because it wasn't bad enough. Um, <laughs> but, uh, you know, I have to say I don't work with bro- bros. I would not describe Nico um, or any of the, our team as bros. Thankfully, they're fantastic. But uh, Mike's it, a bro. <laughs> hey, hey! I am a I have five brothers, so I am a brother. <laughs> that's what I meant. <laughs> he was, yeah, that five brothers. That's a that's a lot of that's a lot of men in one room. Um, <laughs> so, really, I mean, Satoshi Nakamoto had it right by by building this amazing, amazing ecosystem and then never revealing his, her, or their identity. You know, not. Satoshi's not out there influencing what's happening, um, which is truly magical. Like that is the only reason I'd want to meet them is to find out like, how did you, when things have gotten so crazy sometimes, like how did you keep your mouth shut? But, you know, I think some of these, some of these projects where the influencers get a little bit larger than life and they get, get too, you know, too focused on their social following um, and less focused on the business. That's definitely hasn't ended up being a good thing in almost any context. So, you know, going forward, it's something to really kind of look at more of like, hey, who, you know, is the head of this project getting a little bit too influential? And the holy grail right now in crypto is valuation. You know what? It what is what are the fundamentals of crypto? What are the fundamentals of evaluating any specific crypto asset? And we just we don't have that. I mean, in traditional markets, you you know you have the CFA Society, and that's like we have experts basically who can value assets. And um, in crypto, we don't have that. You know, there's just everyone kind of uses a different methodology. Everyone has their own quantum mental methodology, but but when it comes down to it, there isn't really a tried and true valuation methodology for crypto. So we, we have to use sometimes some of these more like, I guess, non-traditional ways of evaluating a project and, you know, the who's leading it and how influential they are is probably going to factor into that a little bit more than maybe it would have previously. You know, social, there's a lot of strategies out there that use social 
social sentiment and social indicators. Um, you know, I don't, I'm not saying we're going to go into that direction because we haven't before, but uh, it's uh, definitely proven in the last six months, at least, to to be somewhat of a negative indicator if the leader has um, a little bit too much of a of a voice and a platform. And it definitely makes our jobs harder, I think, for me and you, Mike, at least. But but on the on the flip side, it's those big personalities that also draw the the capital in to begin with, you know. So it's it's kind of a dual edged sword, I guess. Yeah, that's a good point. You know, you do need to have that charisma. You know, people. I, I was talking to a VC investor recently, a very uh, prolific investor here in Europe, and and his comment was, "I just write checks to people." You know, I, I don't even listen to their idea. If I like the person, I think they've got potential. Like I write that first check and and then I write the second check once I see how good their idea is. Wow. Um, so you do need that personality for a, for a lot of that money that's, to come in. That's fascinating that that's the decision. No one would ever work. write me a single check, Phil Dodd. No, I never have. I certainly never would. <laughs> <laughs> From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox President Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF. But Sadie, maybe you can just talk about what some of the, um, in your what in your estimation are some of the unanswered questions that we still have with everything that happened with FTX. Obviously, the word regulation gets thrown around a lot, but it's not so obvious what that might actually look like. Do we potentially see more regulation of these centralized exchanges? And what else does what else would you like answers to? What what questions are out there that you'd like answered still? So I think really a lot's going to come out in the next week or two about and about the handling of the situation. You know, hindsight bias. We we can go back and try to figure out what what happened. Um, It'd be really great to to understand the Alameda um, FTX transactions and how how some of that came came to to be. You know, it'd be great to understand a little bit more why Binance made that offer and walked away so quickly. You know, there's there's a lot of rumors around that, and you know, but in the end, like, I don't think we'll ever truly know. We're going to know. You know, there's there's what the, the famous quote: "There's what I what I remember happened, what you remember happened, and then there's what actually happened." So we're going to get a lot of that, I think. But the unanswered questions are really how are they going to they how are they going to deal with it? You know, we've got some examples of what I consider to be a really respectable way to handle um, a disaster like this. When with how Voyager has handled it, you know, Steve at Voyager I think is a very very admirable person. 
was really hard to see him go through that, but I feel like they have done a really great job of trying to be as transparent with their customers as possible. Others who I won't say say because I don't want to say the names. Go ahead. <laughs> All right. Um, so Celsius is is I think on the opposite spectrum where um, you know what they've done to customers is is really hard to see, and you know they I don't believe have cared that much um, how it's impacted customers, and and the transparency just hasn't been there. So you know I, I'm really hoping that this FTX situation resolves and that they can restore confidence. And no, no matter what happens, I think you asked about regulation, no matter what happens, you know, regulation is coming. It's always been coming, um, especially for, for people in the United States. Like if you want to be in the United States and stay in the United States and be in crypto, you just have to know that regulation's coming. It's just a fact of life. And we might not like it in some aspects, but, but it is there and it is, it is a protection for investors. Right. And, you know, that whole narrative seems to have shifted over the years. You know, it, it seemed to be at first, you know, the the lack of regulation in crypto was sort of a big selling point, you know, relative to the hundreds and pages of regulation in, in traditional markets. But one thing that occurred to me this week is, and it's, you know, I think it's occurred to others over the years, is that crypto seems to be stumbling into the problems that TradFi had solved with regulations in the past, as as annoying as those regulations can be. And one of them that really springs to mind to me this week is this notion that, you know, well, uh, what is uh, SBF's empire? It's an exchange. Uh, it was a trading shop. And, you know, within all crypto exchanges, you know, there's also basically a brokerage element as well, where, you know, it, should the regulations go where, you know, you're either an exchange, you're a brokerage or you're a trading firm and, and not a combo of the three is, is, is it too risky to sort of have all those businesses uh, sort of, at, if not under one roof, at least under one sort of central control of, of an individual like SPF? So having separation is kind of a basic principle of business. You know, really any, any you know, Sar- Sarbanes-Oxley and, and a lot of other, um, you know, a lot of other regulatory requirements really are focused on, you know, business controls and segregation of duties. And, you know, in a highly regulated industry, there's still, you know, moments where there's just that temptation to sort of, well, play in the gray areas. And, you know, inevitably it tends to hurt clients and and retail customers and and investors. Um, So I think there is inevitably going to need to be regulation there's a tendency, I think, to overregulate in um, in situations where you don't understand the nuances of of an industry. That is one thing that I, I worry is going to happen right now with with what happened at FTX. I'm afraid that you know there's going to be a little bit of a knee jerk reaction to overregulate. Some of those protections are really really important for for our investors, and you know we've always been compliance focused and compliance first. We've never, you know, we, we have a in fully engaged compliance firm, um, you know, that's, that's on call for all of our questions. We, um, you know, we have two different legal teams that we work with. So we're always trying to make sure that we're playing within the rules, but, um, there are a lot of people out there who, who, uh, feel the opposite. And I know, you know, Sam Bankman Freed actually got, um, hazed pretty badly <laughs> recently for, for being pro-regulation, um, ironically. So, yeah. 
Go go long lawyers is the way to play crypto. I think, Soldana. <laughs> yeah, How do we crypto do that? lawyers. <laughs> Well, a, a rough week indeed. Uh, Nico, I assume you're not uh, ready to go back to Iraq after this week, but Sadie, are you, are you tempted to go back to IBM after a week like this? Um, no. <laughs> 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 you know, I do joke that's my fantasy occasionally when I'm just like I've worked like a 20 hour day and I'm you know the markets never stop and I'm like oh maybe I'll just go work for Amazon like that just sounds <laughs> like really relaxing and then I just laugh I'm like yeah and in two weeks I would be going crazy again because I, I mean I love 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 the crypto world I love blockchain I'm so passionate about what we're doing I love going to work every day and I think I would absolutely go crazy if I ever had to take a job that was, you know, at a big corporation and wasn't playing in this space. Wow. What a segue. Speaking of going crazy, Vildana. Wow. That's really good. Right. I think she planned, you think she planned that? Did you plan that, Sadie? (laughs) (laughs) It is uh, that time for the craziest things we saw in markets this week. Pretty normal week, though. Nothing crazy, right, Nothing crazy. Nothing at all. (laughs) I actually have a million things. One million crazy things. I have one million crazy things. Well, I know. I'm going to need you to narrow that down to one. Maybe two, if you got two. Maybe. I have three. How about that? Right. But one is from a listener. Okay. Brian Reichhoff. I hope, Brian, I'm saying your name correctly. I always say that. He flagged to us that the Ontario Teachers Pension had in- invested in FTX. That was going around Twitter as well. A big pension invested in FTX. Yeah. 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 Um, for mine, I had, so Sam Megman fried there had been so much about how he was this grand billionaire. He'd been worth something like $26 billion up until very recently. And he suffered midweek a 94% drop to his wealth. And he, as of Wednesday, I think he had been worth somewhere around a billion dollars. On Tuesday, it had been $15.6 billion. And it was the fastest, the biggest one-day collapse ever among billionaires tracked by Bloomberg. I I think there's speculation that he it might actually be a negative. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. No, for sure. But just the drop is so. So, uh, yeah, he should not go near any Ontario teachers. I would no. avoid the entire Ontario school system if, if I <laughs> How about you guys? What's uh, uh, slim pickings this week? I know. But what's the craziest thing you guys saw this week? So I was reading today about this jewel called the Fortune Pink, which sold at a Christie's auction as 18 point. 18 carat pink diamond. Oh, it's mine. Um, for <laughs> if, I put it up for, for auction. <laughs> well, well done. You did well on that. So it sold for $28.5 million. And I just kind of laughed a little. Well, I think it's funny because every time I'm trying to explain like NFTs to or crypto to someone and, and they're like, but how does it have value? And I'm like, well, you know, here's somebody paid $28 million for a shiny pink rock like <laughs> rock right i mean how does but that it's make a beautiful sense? rock <laughs> <Exactly>. <laughs> that's true it's a it's a great that's a great comparison i always say baseball cards you know what's uh you know uh babe ruth baseball cards a piece of cardboard but you know what's the what's the value to a collector so i guess a giant pink rock especially that's got to tire your hand out wearing that around it tires my hand out uh, a lot yeah i'm sure i'm sure <laughs> how about you nico anything crazy this week yeah, you know, I, I was thinking about this and I could not think of anything crazier than what's already been a topic, but uh, the CEO of one exchange tweeting out that they were going to sell a half a billion dollars of another exchange's uh, cryptocurrency resulting in a like 1800 styles 
bank run that completely bankrupted uh, FTX. Yeah, uh, has got to be the craziest <laughs> thing this week. I, I know the whole sh- the whole show is the craziest. I, I I give it to you, Nico. It, it, sometimes the the obvious in plain sight is is the winner, but uh, I I I think we're all kind of speechless after after this uh, week. Wow. I'll give you mine. I will say uh, the only thing that rivals crypto sometimes for for craziness is the art market. You know, I love the art market. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, Paul Allen, the co-founder of Microsoft, uh, passed away, and uh, his estate sold his art collection. So Vildana, do not look over at my notes here. I'm not looking. Don't looking. No peeking. But it's time. And I re- regret to inform you, uh, Sadie and Nico, you're now contestants on our little game show here called The Price is Precise. Not The Price is Right. 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 This is different. Yes. But the same. With, yes. <laughs> the bull market for lawyers uh, insists that we, we change the name. What do you suppose the total value when it went up for auction at Christie's on Wednesday evening? Total value for Paul Allen's art collection. How, how many pieces are part of it? Uh, 60 artworks. I'm going to go with $248 million. $248 million. That's a very pre- precise price right there. It, it's a pre- We're playing price precise. $248 million. Okay. The other two contestants, Sadie, what's what's your guess on Paul Allen's art collection? So I believe I've heard from a couple people that he was had really great taste in art or he had like quite a collection. Um so I'm gonna I'm gonna go much higher. I'm gonna say I want six hundred and fifteen. Six hundred and fifteen million. You're not Sadie's allowed to revise it. Revise. No, your your bid is in the books. Your bid is in the books. Nico, this is your chance to show up the CEO here and prove why you deserve to be the, the chief investment officer. <laughs> what's your what's your bid for Paul Allen's sixty piece art collection? And remember you Price prices precise rules are similar to another game show you might know. So you could go one dollar, you could go one dollar above uh, the highest highest bid. Yep. Yeah, I'm gonna go with seven hundred and fifty million. All right, all right. You're all way off the mark, but Nico's closest one point five billion dollars for Paul Allen's wow. art collection. Is that nuts? Oh. <laughs> One of the biggest ones, uh, Birch Forest by Gustav Klimt. Klimt? I, I hope I'm saying that right. $105 million. $1.5 billion for wow. an art collection. Isn't that crazy? Yes. I bought it all, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> you hawk that diamond? Yeah, I was walking around with my di- with my pink diamond. and yeah. Now you need a bigger apartment to yeah. dis- display it all. Yeah. Uh, Sadie and Nico, we can't thank you enough. I know it must have been a stressful week for you, and you probably, uh, uh, last thing you wanted to do was rehash it all on a podcast, but uh, we really appreciate you taking the time and and helping us understand uh, what a crazy week it was. Yeah, thanks for having us. Absolutely. Thank you for having us. Yeah, thank you, guys. What Goes Up? We'll be back next week. Until then, you can find us on the Bloomberg Terminal website and app or wherever you get your podcasts. We'd love it if you took the time to rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts so more listeners can find us. And you can find us on Twitter. Follow me at Reganonymous. Vildana Hyrick is at Vildana Hyrick. You can also follow Bloomberg Podcasts at Podcasts. What Goes Up is produced by Stacey Wong. Thanks for listening. See you next time. 
countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com.